0: scripture reading is in Romans 6 verses 1 through 11 shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase by no means we died to sin how can we live with it any longer or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father we too may live a new life. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him, for we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus.
1: Hi, my name is Scott Lumsden. I'm co-executive presbyter of Seattle Presbytery, and um, with our partner churches in Seattle Presbytery, I bring you greetings. Uh, it's an honor to preach this Sunday with you. And uh, so let's, let's hop in. Um, to start off, hey, I'm, I'm just not gonna lie, this text is challenging. Probably not a great uh, text for a guest preacher. Uh, and I know it's not a great text for Father's Day, but it's the assigned reading. uh uh, assigned gospel reading for this sunday in the lectionary and so here we go Uh, the topic is discipleship and jesus doesn't mince words he says essentially if you follow me and become my disciple and you start to put into practice what i am teaching you you will from time to time find yourself in deep conflict in conflict with yourself with others with your friends You might even find yourself in conflict with your own family. Why? Well, that's because God's love reprioritizes your life. And as you order your life around God's love, that reprioritization that God is doing in you will inevitably bump up against the priorities of what's important to those around you. Uh, Sometimes even those closest to you. That's essentially the message right here in a nutshell, that God's love changes everything. And if God's love is in us, it changes everything inside of us too. And that means we too must change. We can't just stay where we are. We have to grow. We have to mature. And we have to live into the person and the people Christ is calling us to be. Well, are you ready? Today's reading is from Matthew chapter 24, uh, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 10, verses uh, 24 through 39. So here's God's word. A disciple is not above the teacher, nor a slave above the master. It is enough for the disciple to be like the teacher, and the slave like the master. If they have called the master of the household Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered up that will not be uncovered, and nothing secret that will not become known. What I say to you in the dark, tell in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim from the rooftops. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. And even the hairs on your head are all counted. So don't be afraid. You are of more value than many sparrows. Everyone, therefore, who acknowledges me before others, I also will acknowledge before my father in heaven. And whoever denies me before others, I also will deny before my father in heaven. Do not think that I've come to bring peace to this earth, I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and one's foes will be members of one's own household. Whoever loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up the cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Those who find their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, first thing I should mention is that the context here is really important. By this time in Jesus' ministry, he had been going all over Judea, healing and preaching and teaching to just about anyone who would come and listen. Jesus didn't discriminate between who was worthy or who was allowed by the conventions of his day to draw near to him. Instead, he drew near to the poor, to the needy, to those who truly needed to hear God's good news. Now this, of course, pushed the buttons of the religious and cultural establishment of Jesus' day. Because extending God's care and mercy to those who were unworthy of God's love lepers, the blind, a Roman military official's son, the sick and demon-possessed, was not a mark of God's kingdom breaking in. It was, they said, a sign of the devil. Heck, even Jesus welcomed a Jewish traitor in those days, called a tax collector, to become one of his disciples. And Jesus' big sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, wasn't about how to observe all the rules of the faith, or how to follow in the tradition of Jerusalem's religious leaders, and it was just the opposite. Jesus lifted up the poor, the hurting, the meek, the hungry, and he gave them worth. For it was they, not the wealthy and the rich, who would inherit the earth. For Jesus, God's love was shown in the weak, And unnoticed in society it was for them that God was breaking into this world to bring about God's salvation he didn't center the powerful he centered the story and the experiences of those disenfranchised by the powerful those who were poor because of the excess of the religious leaders those who were trampled on because of the injustices of the temple and those who were collateral damage in the machinery of the empire and institution builders. Blessed are you who are poor in spirit, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. For these and all sorts of other reasons, the well-established religious society of Jesus' day wanted to kill him. So when Jesus says to his disciples, hey, it's your turn now to go out into all Jerusalem and put into practice what I've shown you. Go out and heal the sick and the hurting and preach that the kingdom of heaven is near. He rightly adds, and be careful because if they want to kill me, they'll certainly want to kill you. Christian discipleship is about putting God's love into practice, into a form that's discernible and noticed by the world. It means witnessing to God's story of love and transformation that is still at work in the world in Jesus Christ. It's about putting what we know and what we've experienced about this story into tangible acts that show that this same Jesus is at work in us too. It's about using our hearts and our hands to work faith, hope, and love into the soil of our communities, neighbors, families, friends, in the hope of a better tomorrow. So therefore, we need two things to be disciples. We need to know this love and we need to show this love. We need to know God's transformational love. We need to know how in love God formed the earth how we breathed life into our human bodies and gave them worth. How God spoke to our forebears in the faith, calling them to put their hope in him for things that they had not yet seen, that they would be a people, that they would have a land, and that they would have a future. We need to know this love, who when all hope was gone, became flesh and dwelt among us, sharing with us the glory of God, and from whose love and fullness we still to this day receive grace upon grace. We need to remind ourselves, too, that God is faithful, despite our failures, through exiles, trials, storms, disappointments, and sometimes even from our own forgetfulness, that the overarching story is that God's faithful love endures forever. But the question of discipleship also asks, then how is God's transformational love getting worked out in my life? What does it look like in me? This is where things get a little complicated, I think. So let me share a little story from my own life. My uncle was a mentor of mine when I was a young Christian. In fact, he was one of only a few Christians in my entire extended family. So we talked a lot when I was younger. He was always there for me. I think I was in my 20s when one Sunday I randomly showed up and visited his church and sat down. We weren't sitting next to each other so he didn't know I was there. And his pastor started in on this rampage against the Beatles and how you could trace the downfall of all American culture to when the music of the Beatles started to become popular. Now this caused me some conflict. Uh, The conflict being how much I loved the Beatles and how much I hated this sermon. So I scanned the congregation to see if anyone else was thinking this was all a bunch of poppycock. And to my amazement, or not. They were apparently really digging it. So I did what I had to do. I got right up in the middle of the sermon and left. Well, I'm not sure how this next thing happened, but that Sunday my uncle ended up coming over for dinner at my parents' house and I was there, and of course he asked the obvious question, Scott, how did you like the sermon? I don't think until that moment I had ever really disagreed with my uncle on anything having to do with the Bible or church or theology, but that night we got into such an argument over that sermon, we were asked to take it outside, out onto the deck. I felt scared and alone, disagreeing with one of the only Christian family members I had, and one who had been such a great mentor to me, but I had to let it go. I had to let go of a way of understanding the gospel that put Jesus in a popularity contest with culture. I had to let go of a God so tiny that his work in the world was thwarted by human agency and invention. To me, it wasn't about what society thought about God. It was about what God thought about society. My God cared about what society was doing for the poor and the powerless, the widow and the orphan not what music they were listening to. I wonder how many of us are having these conversations right now with our own uncles, family members, and friends. I wonder how many of us are having to think through our own discipleship in ways we never imagined. I wonder how many of us are doubting some of our long held assumptions about church and society, about faith and politics. I wonder how many of us are even rethinking church, not just about how we worship, but about what we talk about, and perhaps more importantly, what we don't talk about. Why haven't we as a church talked about race and justice issues more? Why haven't we learned more about the experience of our black and brown siblings in Christ? Why haven't we as white Christians done more to address the systems of racial, and economic injustice. If you have these questions, the good news is this. There's still time. And God is eager for us all to pick up our cross and follow him. Because if discipleship has no trouble, it has no hope. If discipleship has no pain, pardon the pun, There can be no gain. I challenge you today to let go of a discipleship that seeks comfort and certainty and invite you to lean into the discomfort that true discipleship demands. I said at the beginning that God's love reprioritizes your life. And as you order your life around God's love, that reprioritization that God's doing in you and in others will inevitably bump up against the priorities of those around you. Even those, like the story I told, uh, in those closest to you. So I want to challenge you today that if you're feeling disconnected right now in your faith, if you're feeling uneasy or unsure about what's next for you in your own discipleship, I want to say that's not confusion or as jesus uh, they were uh, accusing Jesus of, that's not the work of the devil. I think that's love. I think that's God's love at work in you, drawing you deeper into his love, not further away from it. And I pray you pursue it. Because as I said at the beginning, God's love changes everything. And if God's Love in us changes everything. That means we have to change. We can't just stay where we are. We can't just keep believing the same old things we've always believed. We have to grow and mature and allow God to work inside of us and call us to the people he's calling us to be, to live into the hope he has for us to live into the people that Christ is calling us to be as a church. And I pray that as you do that, that God's peace, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.